meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And all of God's children said together, Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, I'd like to uh, welcome you to our series of messages that this is our fourth week that we're talking about a subject entitled, What is a Christian? And for those of you who are uh, new to us today, and some of you are, because I, I met some of you uh, this, before the service, you're kind of saying, well, didn't we kind of already figure that thing out? <laughs> I mean, don't we already kind of know what a Christian is? Well, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of do some rehearsal and uh, check back with some of the things we've talked about, but... What we're discovering is that what it means to be a Christian is very much different than what some of us have grown up with. Uh, We're going to continue this series four more weeks after today, and then we're going to go into a new series on First Peter starting the first Sunday in October. And we're going to do that as an entire church family. So we're going to invite you to be a part of a grow group, invite you to do some studying on your own in First Peter. And it's going to be a great series as we um, begin our fall uh, session together. But today, what is a Christian? Uh, now, uh, some, one of you told me this morning that uh, I didn't offend you last week. And, uh, but only one of you told me that. So my assumption is that there are others that I did offend. But you came back. And so I just want to tell you, God bless you. And if I offend you today, please come back again. And uh, for those of you um, who uh, are bored, uh, I promise you, if you come back next week, uh, we're going to ratchet this series up a couple of notches next week. In the next two weeks, we're going to really look at some things that are going to really turn your world upside down. So uh, come back next week. So let me catch you up. Um, Jesus never called his followers Christians. In fact, the word Christian was only used three times in the New Testament. And each time the word Christian was used, it was used from people outside of the fellowship of believers. And it was talking about that group of people, those Christians, you know. And it was always used in a derogatory way. So what we discovered the last few weeks is that this word Christian, uh, the reason it's uh, not a very good term a lot of times is because it's not defined in the Bible. Because it's only used three times, and it was used by people outside the church, about the church, and it's not defined. And therefore, for the last 2,000 years, uh, people have defined it any way they want to. Well, a Christian is someone who believes in God. A Christian is someone who votes Democrat. A Christian is someone who... Somebody laughed at that. Uh, I could say the same thing about you Republicans. A Christian is someone who uh, does good things. A Christian is someone who reads their Bible. A Christian is someone who goes to church or gives a tithe. A Christian is someone who uh, uh, believes in the spirit world. So all those things it can mean. And as a result, there's tremendous confusion. And for the last 2,000 years, in the name of Christianity, we've gone out and killed infidels, the Inquisition. In the name of Christianity, we burn people at the stake. In the name of Christianity, we do all sorts of things. In the name of Christianity, we enslave a race of people. All of these things we have done in the name of Christianity. So what Jesus wanted us to recognize is that even though the word Christian is not a very good term, uh, there is a term that he uses often, in fact, dozens and dozens of times, talking about those who are his followers, talking about you and I, those who are followers of Jesus today. And that term that he uses over and over again is... 
disciple. This time I heard from the back row. Usually I just hear from the front row. But uh, a disciple. Now, a disciple is a scary term. And the reason it's a scary term is because it's very specific. Uh, a Christian can mean anything you want it to mean. Well, I'm a Christian. You know, it means I, I'm an American. You know, it can mean anything you want it to mean. But a disciple is a very specific definition. It's one who follows Jesus, follows his teachings, follows his heart, follows his words, follows his footsteps, follows everything he does and says and believes. A disciple is one who says, I'm signing off on that. I'm believing in that. That's the way I'm going to live my life. So a disciple says, Jesus, what would you have me do at work in this moral conundrum? Uh, Jesus, what would you have me to do at, at school, in my high school, uh, when somebody asked me about drugs or having sex? Uh, Lord, what would you have me do? And so, so the first thing we do is not say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm a follower of Jesus. And, and before Jesus even responds to us, usually through his word, and tells us what he thinks about that situation, you've already given your, him your answer as a disciple, and your answer is always what? Yes. Oh, but Jesus, I haven't even gotten the question out of my mouth. Jesus said, sorry. The answer is always yes. A disciple says, yes, Jesus, whatever you believe, whatever you, your heart is, whatever you do, however you walk, however you touch lives, yes, 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 yes. And then we discovered that the sign of a disciple, John told his close followers, and this was the new commandment he gave, and that new commandment is, I want you to love each other the way that I have loved you. We kind of reduce everything into one small pot, and that pot is... How do you love others the way that Jesus loves you? Jesus gave his followers a name, disciple. Now, interestingly, and I think most of you realize by now that I, there's two things I really love besides God well, and my wife and my family and ice cream, is uh, football and history. So, you know, most of my illustrations have come from those two uh, sources. Uh, football season starts next week, which is awesome. But uh, for today, we'll go to history. So here, here we go. Um, Jesus, when he was on the earth, it was kind of unintentional, but it happened. Jesus gave a brand to his people, to the disciples, to the followers. Not Christians. They weren't Christians. They were much more specific than that. They were disciples. And the brand that he gave them, and he took so seriously, and he said, I want you to carry this everywhere, is this cross. Now, let me do something. If you are wearing a cross somewhere on your body, uh, around your neck, earrings, tattoo, if you're wearing a cross, would you stand up? Stand up where you are. Okay. Now, I want everybody to look around at the number of people that are wearing a cross. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, go ahead and sit down. Um, how many of you have been to Rome? Raise your hands. I'm not going to make you stand up. Okay. Rome, I've never been there, but I would love to be there. Sherry said yesterday, if I could do anything I wanted to, no expenses, no anything, but, and we both agree, it would be a Mediterranean cruise, but there would be a long stop at Rome. And I, I, I would love to see Rome. If you were to go to Rome today, here's what you would see. You would see crosses everywhere. Everywhere. Not just the churches. You would see crosses everywhere. At the emperor's gate. At the slave's gate. At the Roman Colosseum. There would be crosses all over the place. Now, 
this might be a staggering reality to some of you that are not. If you're not a Bible God person, that's okay. We, 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 we invite everybody to be part of this, this, what we call fellowship, this family. But if you're not a Bible or a, a God person, this might be new to you, this historical piece. You see, um, if you go back to A.D. 64, Nero, the emperor, um, has burned down Rome, and there's reasons he did that. But then he wanted to find a scapegoat, and the scapegoat was what he called what? The Christians, right? Oh, those Christians. And uh, it's their fault, and he blamed them. And so there was this tremendous persecution among Christians. And uh, Nero announces that the Christians were to blame, and he rounds up his henchmen and his road warriors to gather up Christians, and he goes to work. And we, we know that in the first generation uh, after Nero, that over... <laughs> Listen to this. A hundred thousand Christians are killed. A hundred thousand. Okay. So uh, Nero, uh, his deal was he had what they called Nero's Circus. And it was what we call the modern Colosseum. Nero's Circus was where you'd take these Christians and you would feed them to the lions or you would feed them to wild dogs. And then if you were still had Christians left over and it was starting to get dark, you would uh, light Christians as torches and continue the persecution. That's what was happening in A.D. 40. So now just with your, with your imagination for a moment, follow me on this trail. So um, Christians were fleeing Rome, uh, trying to save their families and get away from Rome because they were part of this movement that was called the way. And these were disciples and they were followers of Jesus. And, and because it was so dangerous, some of them would flee the city and get outside of Rome. And so I want you to imagine with me uh, a farmhouse, maybe a mile away from Rome. And in the farmhouse, in the barn, there are huddled three Christian families. Oh, sorry, three families of believers, three families of disciples. And these disciples were terrified. Uh, they knew that if a Roman, Rome, uh, Nero sent out his henchmen, his road warriors, to find these people, bring them back, and burn them. Uh, uh, so they were terrified and especially afraid for their children. And, and these people are huddled up in this barn. And let's say you, a, a modern person, uh, a modern believer, a modern disciple would come back to them and sit down with them in the barn. Their, their children are just shaking. They're so afraid and the moms are afraid for their children and they don't know what to do and what's going to happen. Are we going to be found? Are we going to be safe? We're followers of Jesus. This is scary. And you sit down with them and, and this is what you say. Did you know that one day the city of Rome will be adorned everywhere with crosses. And that these crosses will be on the signposts and on the roadsides and on almost all of the buildings. And these crosses won't represent Rome. And these crosses won't even represent crucifixion. These crosses will represent one single crucified carpenter. One man, Jesus Christ, the man that you follow, the man that you love, the man that you serve. It will represent that one Christian man. Now, 30 years ago, this was unthinkable, he would, that you would say to these families, you know, kind of huddled there. But the one you worship, Jesus Christ, your Lord, will be the epicenter of the world. Even though there's persecution everywhere and you're terrified, one day... One day, there will be crosses representing Jesus Christ everywhere around the world. Can you imagine that? And the families would say, well, no. 
we're just a small movement. We, we believe in Jesus and we want to be his disciples and we want to do what he tells us to do. But no, that, that's, there's no way that's possible. Rome is forever. Rome is huge. The only one we're supposed to worship is Jupiter. That's the Roman God. That's the one we're to worship, but we refuse. We are believers. And so you would say, well, can you imagine that one day, literally millions and millions of people around the world will make pilgrimages to places like Rome, and there's others, and they, they, there they will worship Jesus Christ. And there, upon that place where Nero's circus used to be, there will be a place called St. Peter's Cathedral. And you know St. Peter? You mean, and they would say, you mean the leader of the church? The, the, that Peter? That's the guy. There will be a cathedral there where, where Nero's circus used to be. And can you imagine that? And they would say, no, that's impossible to imagine. We're just one small movement. And yet, within 300 years, which, by the way, represents a very, historically speaking, a very short amount of time, within 300 years, there are crosses and there are Christians everywhere in the world. How did that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. For 300 years, not Christians, but disciples lived their lives in such a way, and they loved in such a way, and most of them died in such a way, that people would look to their lives and to these communities, these ecclesias, these small house churches, these communities, they, they would look over the edge and they would say, see how they love one another. I can't believe how these people lo- not only love each other, but, but see how they love us. We're pagans. We're, we, we're, we still worship Jupiter. So see how they love us. I can't believe. I don't know what's going on with them, but, but I want to be like them. And for 300 years, the church spread this message of love and sacrifice. They had no leverage. They had no political leverage. They had no financial leverage. They had no educational leverage. They weren't going to legislate morality. They weren't going to tell you how to live your life. They would love you into submission. They would love you like Jesus loved them until you would say, I I want that. That's how the church grew. There were no swords. There were no there, there were no soldiers marching around saying you've got to be Christians until right Constantine in 317 A.D. There was none of that. There was only love. And there's only these disciples saying, I'm going to live in such a way and love in such a way and die in such a way. The people will say, I want that. So you have to ask yourself the question, so how am I doing with this? How are we doing with this? I hope by week four, like me, that you're tired of being a Christian. I, I I, I just don't want that. And you know what I'm saying when I say that? I, I want to be a disciple. I want to say yes. I want to say yes to Jesus, whatever it takes. I want to be a disciple. Today, I want to um, tell you about the speech that Jesus gave that started this movement. Uh, this was the speech that he gave that got everybody fired up, everybody ready to go out and live and love and die in such a way that people would say, I want that. 
uh, disciples. So this is his speech. Even before Pentecost, Jesus started getting the, the crowds aroused around this idea of how to live their lives for Jesus with Jesus' heart and his mind and his soul in their lives, how to be a follower of Jesus. This was a revolutionary, world-changing, listen, shut down the Roman Empire speech. That's what this was. It was a shut down the Roman Empire, which is the most powerful entity on the earth. And so in your mind, you're saying, "Okay, William Wallace, paint my face blue, draw my sword. Okay, man, I'm ready to go. We're going to crush these Romans and we're going to crush these Jewish uh, Pharisees. And we are going to establish the kingdom of God. And Jesus is going to be our ruler. And we're going to make this happen. We are ready to go. And so Jesus gathered many of his disciples and all of his followers, not all of them, but most of them. Five, six, seven, eight thousand, depending on how they counted in those days. And it was a large group, and it was uh, on the, a mountainside. And as a result, they called this the Sermon on the Mountain. Very good. Oh, you're smart. Okay, you're paying attention. The Sermon on the Mount. And, and they're getting all fired up, and the people are anxious, and there's a buzz in the crowd, right? There's a buzz in the crowd. What's he going to say? How are we going to do this? When is it going to start? When is this revolution going to uh, upend everything? And then Jesus begins, and this is what he says in Matthew 5. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I imagine that at this point, some of the disciples are going, what? What was that? Poor in spirit? What? I don't understand. So Jesus went on. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. And when Jesus finished the first part of his speech, I am sure the people sitting in the crowd went, that's it? That's that's, that's the best you got, Jesus? I hope you're going to do a miracle because this speech is kind of lousy. doesn't really inspire anything. You know, where's the the blue paint? Where's the swords? (laughs) How how are we going to get this thing done? Come on. Power. You know, power over. We're going to crush those Romans. We're going to do this. Power over. And Jesus, everything he says in the first part of this Sermon on the Mount is power under, power under, power under. I serve, I serve, I love, I give, I sacrifice, I give, I love, everything, power under. And so as he's going through the speech, I just can imagine somebody in the crowd, you know, going like, probably Peter and some other people. Uh, excuse me, Jesus, I just want to interrupt for a second. Blessed are the meek. What Meek? Are you kidding me? How, how, how much good has meek done us for the last 30 years? The last two and a half years of your ministry. How, how's this meek thing working out for us? I mean, so often we're kicked out of cities and we have to run and hide somewhere before we can do ministry. So, meek? Is that what you're telling you want us to be? Is that what you're saying you want us to be meek? And he goes on a little bit further. And said, I have another question. Somebody else in the crowd, another question. Peacemakers? You want us to be peacemakers? Now, if Jesus could have told me, he said, well, let me tell you what's going to happen in the next 30 years. 
you're going to, this movement is going to multiply amazingly. But 100,000 of you are going to be killed, including all of your leaders except for John. <laughs> That's peacemakers. Are you serious? That's what you want us to do? I mean, we're supposed to retake our world, but that's how we're going to do it. So, so Jesus is there and they're listening. And, and I'm sure the disciples say, just let me review. Let me review, Jesus, what you're saying. You're telling us that we are poor and sad and meek and merciful and hungry and peaceful and persecuted and insulted. That's who we are. Jesus said, yeah, yeah, that's who you are. Really? I mean, that, that's the. That's the speech you're going to give us to change the world? <laughs> Man, I've, there's been a lot of speeches. You know, I, it, are you kidding? Is that the best you've got? Well, what about saber rattling? What about paint your, paint your face blue? What about draw your sword and cut off somebody's ear? Who's going to stand up and say no to this evil in the world? And yet 300 years later, this message of Jesus about being poor in spirit and this message of Jesus about being peacemakers and this message of Jesus about hungering and thirsting for God in such a way that you can't even breathe without God. And yet you're living this out and people are responding and thousands and thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ. And as fast as Nero's killing them, more are coming into the family and you just can't stop this movement and not a sword is drawn. There's not one person that has power over. It's always power under. And 300 years later, there are literally millions of believers on the planet yeah, that's my speech. Now, Jesus said, well, okay, let me, let me help you understand a little bit better. Let me give you in practical terms. Let me give you two word pictures. Because I want you to love the way I love. I want you to live the way I live. And I want you to die the way I die. Okay, that's what Jesus said. Let me give you a couple of word pictures. Uh, and he goes on. He says the first one is this. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, everyone there knew what Jesus was talking about. The only preservative they had, they had no uh, refrigerators or anything like that. The only preservative, preservative substance they had was salt. And this substance was added to food to present, prevent decomposition, to keep the food from rotting, from stinking. And Jesus said to the disciples, no swords. Love is your primary delivery system, right? That's your delivery system to the world. Love, peace, joy, all of those things. So uh, no swords, but this love, this delivery system, I want you to do that. And when you do that, you will be salt of the earth. You, you will literally preserve the earth. Now, that's what it talks about. Now, think about that. Preserve the earth. Well, how's that happen? I mean, aren't things worse today than they've ever been in the history of mankind? Well, wait a minute. Let's look at that. In the first century, women had no position or authority whatsoever in the world, not just the Roman Empire. Women were considered second-class citizens. Children, even less than women. Slaves, no position, no authority, just based on the fact that you talk different or you have different color skin or any other reason. No, no none of that. That first century was driven by power over. It was driven by what we have the ability to make you do. There was this political leverage, this financial leverage, this religious leverage 
But everything changed with Jesus. Women have equal position in most of the world today. Not all of the world, but most of the world. And it's because of one thing. The influence of the Judeo-Christian message. Jesus Christ. That's why. Hospitals sprang up all over the world, especially during the medieval times, because of disciples. Orphanages. Homes for the elderly. Places where people who were poor and indigenous and had no chance to have any kind of a life were given a second chance. All of this came out of that first 300 years of loving each other in such a way that you will literally change the culture. You are to be the salt of the earth. What about us today, Pastor Duane? It's kind of hard to do it today. Yeah, I don't think so. It may be hard, but it's doable. I could give you thousands of, 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 of examples of you being the salt of the earth on your high school campuses, at your elementary schools, at your jobs, at your PTA meetings, at the marketplace. People literally who are preserving our society through the presence of Jesus in individuals like you and like me. You are the salt of the earth. Otherwise, culture rots. Look how rotten the culture was in the first century. Look how rotten it was at other times in our history. The world stinks, but we are to be that preserving influence in the world. The first century was valueless. Jesus brought a value that all people had place. All people mattered. Jesus Christ changed everything. Well, now those first 300 years, we see that we you know, salt preserves. And that's what we're supposed to do. The, the, the people gathered there at the Sermon on the Mountain said, yeah. But let me give you another word picture, he said. Uh, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Notice it didn't say that they may see your good deeds and praise you. It doesn't say that. They may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 14 to 16. Some of you are saying right now, and I'm sure somebody at the people at the Sermon on the Mount were saying the same thing, would say something like this. But can't I just be a Christian and go to heaven? This is too exhausting. This is too much. Can't I just be a Christian? I can define it any way I want. I can live in the world and on Sunday kind of get washed clean a little bit and just kind of go through life. Can't can I just be a Christian? And Jesus said, no, because there's no such thing as a Christian. We know what that means. If you want to be my disciple, it changes everything. It changes the way you live your life. It changes the way you love. It changes the way you die. It changes everything. You are to be the light of the world. But I don't want to be the light. Well... You've got a choice, either a disciple or be a Christian. That's the choice that God gives us. So some people might say, well, did I pray the magic prayer? And I just leave me alone. I just want to go to heaven. Now, now that Jesus said that's not an option. He said, in fact, I placed you on a, in a place where people can see you. Uh, if you look at the, uh, the context of this uh, passage, uh, this, uh, they used to have these houses, kind of cities on a hill, and they would put lights in the windows. It was kind of like a, um, a lighthouse. So it would draw strangers and people say, this is a safe place. You can come here. That's kind of the imagery that Jesus is giving, that uh, you are to be light, light up in the world so that people see you or they are drawn to you and they can come to you and they can see Jesus. 
in you. Not that you're doing good works. Oh, you're such a good person. No, but the good works that you're doing that connects to Jesus. And they said, and what, what, what um, Jesus was saying here is that I have strategically placed you where you are right now, at this time, in this place, to be who I need you to be, to be salt and light. And, and you might say, well, no, I, I just moved here from Orlando and I lost my job. And now I'm trying to figure out how to get back to Orlando. And no, G, Jesus would say, no, right now, at this moment, I strategically placed you in Chandler, Arizona, at Hope Covenant Church, on your street, in your community, I've strategically, but you are a light of the world. There's another passage uh, that uh, it's not in your bulletin, but let me just share that with you. Acts 17, 26 and 27. Um, Luke writes these words from one man. He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And listen to this. And he determined God determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Let me change that where you should live. The exact places where you should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God has placed you strategically where you are right now to be light in your community, to be light in your home, to be light in your church, to be light in your school and your place of, of business. Wherever you are, you are strategically placed to be a light. You are the light of the world. You're not some random follower. You're not some random Christian. You're a disciple. Yeah, but I just moved here uh, to stay with my boyfriend, and then he dumped me, and I want to get back to it. Okay, I, maybe you do need to get back, but for right now, at this moment, God has strategically placed you here in Chandler, Arizona, to be the light of the world. But Pastor Dwayne, can't I just be a Christian? Well, of course you can. That's a choice you can make. But God says, I want you as a disciple to live your life in such a way so that people see you and they say, look how generous that person is to those who are hurting. I'm amazed at how generous they are. Or look how that man treats his wife uh, in, in his home and in the public. Nobody treats their wives that good. And look about that. Look at that teenage girl, that sophomore at Hamilton High School. Look at that girl who goes there and she says no to drugs and she says yes to people who need help. And she is a presence for Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You're preserving your culture at Hamilton High School. You are the light of the world. God has called you to be a disciple, not a Christian. Don't settle for being a Christian anymore. Live your life in such a way. So that people peer over the edge of the church. And maybe they walk into our church and they, they look and they say, see how they love one another. And that's how you change the world. That's how the world is transformed. Not with a sword, not with politics, not with money. That's how the world is changed. Now, there's something else in that text about being alive of the world. It says that your good deeds, that there's a dot that is connected between you and God by the way you live your life. That's what Good Deeds talks about. The way you live, the way you love, the way you die. So that dot is connected between you and God. And if you're living your life well, that dot is connected. People look at you and they say, that must not be Rusty. That that must be God, because that's a connector that I'm seeing in his life. So it's not about you being a good person. We know that being good doesn't get you to heaven, right? We know that. It's about 
being a person in such a way that your life points to Jesus, that your love points to Jesus, that even the way you die points to Jesus. Everything points to him. Now, some of you are great at this. We've been we've invested in Streetlight, Maggie's Place, the homeless at Salvation Army, at uh, uh, all kinds of different ministries and outreaches and missions and everything. Many of you are really good at investing and inviting. Uh, but some of you are still saying, yeah, but I just want to be a Christian. I don't want to invite my neighbor to church. I'll come. I'll give my tithe. I'll read the Bible occasionally. Uh, you know, but I, I just want to be a Christian. Just leave me alone. And I said, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, as your pastor, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm, I'm not. You might say, well, okay, then I'll go to another church. You know what? I don't want that, but I'm not going to leave you alone. God doesn't want Christians. He wants disciples. He wants people to say yes. Before the question's even finished. Yes, Jesus, whatever you say. I know your heart in this. I know know what you're thinking in this because I read scripture. I know the answer is yes. Many of you are really good at this. But some, uh, I just want to be a Christian. See, in the first century, these disciples, well, here's what they do. They go down to the river and they pick up kids who were abandoned there and they would take them to their homes. Uh, these were disciples. Um, they would see these women that were discarded because their husbands divorced them and they had no recourse. They had no ability to get a job. Many of them would turn to prostitution. They would go and they would rescue these women and say, you come and live with me. See, they lived in such a way, they loved in such a way, and yeah, they died in such a way that people would say, look at how they love each other. That's extraordinary. I can't believe that. I can't believe that they're doing that. The plagues that came in the 5th, 6th, 12th, 13th centuries, the plagues that came throughout the world, guess who were the ones that stood back and ministered to these people who were dying of the plague? Not the pagan priests. They're the first ones out of town. But it was the believers, it was the disciples, those who called in the name of Jesus, who held these people and they loved them and see how they love one another. They lived their lives in such a way that people would say, I've got that, I need that, I want that. They were salt and they were light and that didn't change for 300 years. Here's what Jesus would say to us today. Don't settle for being a Christian. Uh, There's one young person in our church who... uh, on uh, his Facebook, uh, changed his status from Christian. You know, when you, and you know, when a parent sees this, they go, oh no, this is not good news. Until she read that he changed his status from Christian to a follower of Jesus Christ. Somebody's been listening to the sermons. Somebody says, this is how I want to live my life. I want to be a disciple. I'm tired of going through the motions of being a Christian. A Christian can be anything you want it to be. Jesus said, I want you to be my disciples. I want you to be salt. And I want you to be light. Now that you are a Christ follower, a disciple, you are a follower of Jesus. Because someone, someone has been a light and salt in your life. I think often um, of our teenagers and our children in our church. Uh, On the first Sunday of the month, we're going to do something different. And this Sunday is kind of the first experiment. We're having the teenagers stay in worship with us and and we're going to have the t- children come in and worship with us around communion. We're trying to connect, you know, as families. But some of the most precious things I have in my uh, office are emails and letters over the years of kids that I had in youth group back in the 70s when I was a youth pastor that email me now and send me notes now and say, you know what, I'm following the Lord. I'm a disciple. My kids are following the Lord. My grandkids are following the Lord. And 
imagine one day our children that are in here today and our children that are over in that area, that one day they'll send emails and I don't know, whatever they'll send back, you know, 30 years from now, you know, think mails or something. You know, you know, so, you know Pastor Brian, Chris, Vicki, Amber, you know, Mikey, Mark, you know, you guys, you know, guys, you guys, you showed me the love of Jesus and it's changed my life completely. You are the salt of the earth. Teenagers, you're the salt of your campus. No, I'm a freshman. There are days I can't even find my locker. That doesn't matter. (laughs) You are the salt of your campus. You are the light because salt always preserves and light always shows the way. And that light that shows the way connects the dots between you and Jesus. You are the light of the world. Wherever you are. And God has called you to be right here, right now, Chandler, Arizona. Salt always preserves. Light shows the way. Brothers and sisters, as we come to the Lord's table now, I want to invite you as a disciple of Jesus Christ to receive the body and the blood of Jesus. This is a remarkable symbol. Uh, It's similar to what I said early in the message about the cross, that we carry crosses around our, our necks and we carry them on even tattoos and we, we have these cry, it represents who we are. This, this, ex, this experience here, the body and blood of Jesus, represents who you are as a disciple of Jesus Christ because it talks about how Jesus lived, about how he loved, and about how he died. And that's what he's called you to be as well. Would you bow your heads with me, please?